Hello and welcome to the official Building Your Business podcast series presented by Archer Gallon Redshaw Chartered Accountants. Our firm has launched this podcast series to help simplify some of the complex challenges that occur when owning and operating a business and to assist business owners to better understand the inner workings of their organization, regardless of which industry you operate within. Every month, we'll be releasing a new episode featuring special guests from industry, as well as Archie Gallen Redshaw directors Ian Walker, Smilian Jankovic, and Valda Glenn, to provide their commentary on a variety of business management topics, alongside expertise surrounding accounting, taxation, and business strategy. Welcome to our podcast series, Building Your Business. Hello and welcome. My name is Chris Lewis, and it's great to be returning back for season three of the official Building Your Business podcast presented by Archie Gallon Redshaw Chartered Accountants. Across the year ahead, we've got a whole new lineup of C-suite executives and senior leadership professionals that I'll be sitting down with um, throughout the year to get their commentary on a wide variety of business topics and matters important to you as business owners and senior leaders to assist and give you some guidance in your own business journeys. The first of which joins me here today, and I'm very fortunate to be joined by Robert Dunn, Director of Commercial Sales at Savills Australia here in Brisbane, alongside Ian Walker, Executive Chairman of Archer Gallon Redshaw. So across the session here today, Ian and Robert will be discussing the current trends in the commercial property market that we've seen um, across the last 12 months and, and of course leading into the next 12 months as well, with particular focus given to the macro and micro environmental factors impacting property in 2022. So throughout today, each will give their opinion on areas including the supply and demand within the industry, the effects of increasing interest rates and inflation, the current COVID-19 pandemic's uh, impacts on tenancy, uh, subleasing, and then also finally how the shift to working from home will influence buyer behaviour for commercial property both now um, and also into the future. So together, the open discussion will bridge their experience and industry expertise to provide you some really valuable insights and some key takeaways regarding the sector, as well as their own opinions on the future of work. Welcome, Robert. Uh, Thanks very much for having us, Chris. As some background, Robert is a leading commercial real estate agent specialising in commercial property sales here in Brisbane for over 25 years. As Director of Savills, Robert is a trusted property advisor who has developed an extensive network throughout the industry and is known to work with premium buyers in real estate transactions. Such transactions of Robert's have included 300 George Street and the REIQ headquarters as well. Robert also has a passion in mentoring the next generation of commercial real estate professionals coming through and is currently retained by the REIQ to train agents in commercial property sales. Thanks, Chris. I've been with Savills for some time. Um, I certainly enjoy the people I work with and and the things that we do, and mostly we're just out there trying to help people get ahead in life. So if there's ways we can do that, then uh, a lot of that's just sitting down and talking to people, helping understand what they want and helping them get what they want. Terrific. And, uh, and Ian, good to have you back for a third season. Yes, welcome to 2022. So I think uh, over the, the Christmas break and into January, we've seen a lot of uh, discussion around property, especially on the residential side with uh, the market still going up at high percentages. Uh, I suppose that's what um, put us on the path of a property discussion today because I thought it'd be quite topical to 
start a new calendar year with um, some very good insights on not just residential, but as Chris mentioned, commercial and industrial as well. So, Robert, I think we've all seen it. We've all read about it and heard about it. We're now starting to see a little bit in the media around it may and when it will happen. But let's firstly talk about interest rates um, with property because it's a big thing and it's quite uh, topical at the present time. So from your experience and uh, knowledge of past decades of, of interest rate rises and falls that we've seen, we all hear our parents talk about the 17% interest rate days. We've also gone through times when interest rates have been as low as they have been now. So how does interest rates impact property, both commercial, industrial and resi, if you wish to touch on that? And what do you see happening in 2022 in this area? Yep. Um, so, Ian, everyone's affected by residential, so we might as well start there. Yep. I think uh, with interest rates as low as they are, you know, money's almost free uh, and that makes it very affordable. So you've got people taking what is their typical um, earnings per annum and they're able to afford uh, more expensive assets than they would if interest rates were a fair bit higher. Uh, at the moment, globally, uh, interest rates are historically very low. Um, up until now, there's been pretty much downward pressure on those interest rates. Uh, certainly, there's a fair bit of talk in the central banks and media about uh, upward pressure and some increases this year. Um, that seems likely to happen. Um, just the speculation does uh, often have an effect where people get a little bit more conservative. But at the moment, uh, with that affordability, you know, it means that people are able to move into either a better location or a better uh, quality of home than they previously could, and they've taken advantage of that. And when you take the effect of COVID, you know, they're spending more time at home. So if they're spending more time at home, they want that home to be in the nicest location and the best quality they can afford. So how does, I suppose, inflation, uh, interest rates impact the commercial and office sectors? Yep. Uh, well, I think you just mentioned the canary in the cage and that's in the threat of inflation. You know, certainly uh, globally, um, inflation's high. I think some of that is, you know, supply shocks of COVID. So there's demand there and it's harder to satisfy that demand. That's certainly on the consumption side. Um, but I think uh, in Australia, we're going to be a little less affected. You know, for there to be sustained inflation, you need uh, wage growth. And at the moment, for two years, we've had very little immigration in Australia. So there's been a little bit of upward pressure on wage growth, particularly in some professions. Uh, but I think as soon as wealthy immigrants start coming back to Australia, then that will alleviate that. More supply and labour means uh, usually, uh, you know, you get less growth. And I don't think inflation is going to affect us in Australia quite as much as some of the international markets, probably. Uh, on the commercial side of things, um, certainly your investors are looking for return. At the moment, you know, uh, having cash in bank is returning very little. And so those investors are quite happy to get what has historically been a very low return on their property assets because they're not just getting income, they're getting capital growth. And so you've seen uh, those the returns on properties trend downward with interest rates. As interest rates level up, our uh, investors' expectations going to change too. They probably will, but I think there'll be a, a little lag in that. At some stage, interest rates will be going up and returns will keep dipping down for a bit longer because there'll be that way to capital still trying to find a home before they change. Historically, real estate's always been seen as a good hedge against inflation. So usually uh, when values are going up, you want as much capital out there as possible. And that means that some of that is debt funded. So I don't think too many people are going to be that scared of that situation. 
so you're not a part of the crowd which thinks that there's going to be this big cliff we're going to fall off. You're still positive that for 22, 23 onwards, um, that property is still going to be a great asset class for, for reasons that you've outlined with respect to um, money in the bank. Uh, I mean, I suppose the questions that we get asked a fair bit is, you know, if inflation does rise, you know, the asset is a, is a hedge. Is that still going to be the case? Yeah. Is this time different? And I think the other big question is in is around interest rates. So if inflation rises, you know, Reserve Bank wishes to slow down the economy. First thing they do slam on the brakes is is increase interest rates. So is is there a capacity constraint around people's earnings? Like you said, wage growth hasn't got out of hand here. So have we seen this spike that perhaps will plateau for a while? Even if interest rates climb, we shouldn't be too scared about an economy that's going to collapse. Yeah. I think if you look at the fundamentals of, of the cycle we're in, particularly with the property cycle, uh, you've got low interest rates, you've got a lot of momentum from buyers, uh, and that's likely to continue. At the moment, on the residential um, market, uh, I don't think we've seen the full uh, migration from north to south, so you're going to see a lot more people from Melbourne and Sydney moving north, and they're going to end up in places like Brisbane and the coast. Uh, and when they're selling properties down there for substantially more than than what they're able to buy here. That means that uh, those, uh, what locals might consider high property prices are going to continue and maybe continue to go up. And that's the next year or two. And then after that, I believe you'll start to see your, your immigration kick back in. So certainly within the next year, you'll get international students back next year. You'll get wealthy immigrants saying, well, you know, this COVID experience we've had for the last two years, you know, I want to take me my family and my money and I want to go to a safe haven and those safe havens are certainly uh, places like New Zealand and Australia and if they're coming to Australia then um, certainly South East Queensland is, is the safest of those safe havens and that's going to benefit from all of that so uh, I see these trends continuing regardless of what might happen with interest rates, inflation and, and wages. The glass half full is the best place to be I agree and I think we also have in the background uh, and you touched on some of this migration both in a state and in an international, I suppose the other big projects that we have coming up in Queensland and the southeast corner, the major infrastructure projects in the Olympics themselves. So are we seeing the start of a continued boom because of the infrastructure in the Olympics or is it just too far out at this point and maybe it's three or four years we have to get you back to see how the Olympics are impacting? property. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, you only look at the experience with both the Commonwealth Games that have happened in Australia uh, recently and the Olympics in Sydney. You know, the federal funding for infrastructure, they're just basically taking, you know, um, infrastructure plans that might be set out for the next 20, 30 years and they're bringing that all into a sharper time frame of, you know, three to five years uh, to prepare for those uh, major events. Well, the impact of that spending in Sydney was significant, and that's for a population, you know, three or four times of what we've got. So I really think even if uh, it's a bit more austere, the spending, it's going to have a huge impact, particularly in, in the, the second half of the next decade leading up to the Olympics. So if domestic and, and international migration drive, you know, that property market for the next few years, then that infrastructure spending on the Olympics is, is going to pick up and, and run that next wave, I think, is what you're going to see. And, and sure, we might have some, in the next decade, uh, some neutral years. We might have some, some backward years, but uh, the bulk of those years are going to be pretty strong. 
Well, that's great news for everyone, I think. I suppose there's always going to be people listening to this podcast about, but, you know, the now is inflation, the now is interest rates. You know, I can't see past, you know, the, the election that's coming, etc. And I suppose with inflation, we've heard a lot about the supply chain being the issues and it's transitory and not permanent and those sorts of things. So in your experience and, and you know, your people out on the ground talking to, to landlords and tenants for that matter as well, putting putting aside the printing of money as the debate of it, of inflation, the supply chain, is it is it impacting the commercial and the and the and the warehouse logistic industries out there? Um, are, are the tenants suffering? And if so, is inflation a little bit more than just transitory? Mm. Oh, good, good question. I think um, the, the market's suffering more from the effect of COVID, so particularly around consumption and that consumption shifting from uh, bricks and mortar to online. I think that's just uh, accelerated what was already an existing trend and something that might have taken you know 10 years to get to this kind of level of spending online has happened within one to two years. And so um, the most noticeable effect on that is, you know, sort of your strip retail. You know, you, when you draw, you take the commute from wherever you are to work or, or wherever you're going, you know, you see a lot more vacancies in those strip retail. You see a lot more for lease signs. And I think that's just going to be an ongoing trend for some years uh, for that to adjust. Because these days, you know, for retail and the retailers and their customers, you know, unless there's good parking, unless it's a nice facility, you know, they're, they're choosing to, to upgrade to better quality for similar cost. Well, you know, those uh, investors that used to buy and never sell in those inner city locations and those old worn out properties that never really got maintenance spent on them, they're the people that are going to suffer the most in, in a shift to quality for the same value. And I think you're going to see the same around, you know, there's a real talk around um, build to rent, which is really a fancy name for um, flats and boarding houses and that sort of thing, although you can get, you know, bigger... Um, some more substantial apartment blocks are the same, which is people now generating uh, income out of residential property rather than just selling those uh, finished apartments and houses. And uh, there's a flight to quality there as well. So those old timber and tin you know, boarding houses and flats around Brisbane, they're the ones that are going to have the significant vacancy and, and most people are going to choose to move into something closer to work or of better quality for a similar cost. So that uh, will just wash out. So some areas will be more affected than others, but overall, I think we're going to be well ahead. So regentrification is on the cards in a lot of inner city suburbs. You think at, on the commercial retail side? Absolutely, already happening. You know, if you work in town, who wouldn't want a, a shorter commute? And I think you know we haven't touched on it yet, but working remotely for most people, for most employees, if you're going to pay them the same remuneration and you can take away their commute and allow them to work from home for up to five days a week, they're going to take it. So I think the real challenge for employers is how they can get those people back uh, into the workplace, which predominantly they want to, because how else do you onboard people? How do you, uh, how do you build culture? How do you add value to those people? And I think you know, working remotely has worked so well because for the previous decades we'd all worked in an office so we already had those relationships trust and skills and systems in place uh, but now we're uh, almost into our third year of, of working remotely you know what's that going to look and feel like and from an employer's point of view if they're paying for office space and they've taken a lease for five or ten years you know that vacancy or need for space hasn't yet washed out of that market and it's going to take some time before it does 
but certainly they like to see their employees contributing and usually that means seeing them in the office and so there's no doubt there's a desire to see that happen and they're going to have to look for mechanisms to make that happen. I think one of the ways of doing that that still gives the employee flexibility over their lifestyle is around remuneration. If you want 100% of your remuneration then either be in the office 100% of the time or maybe it's you know four days a week. If you want to work remotely more than that, then maybe you're getting less than 100% of your remuneration. And I think that would allow people to choose the, the amount of uh, reward for effort and how much time they had. And uh, adding flexibility would only uh, make you a more attractive employment option for most people. I think you're also going to see it around holidays, you know, four weeks a year or for some organisations, five for loyalty leave is a little restrictive. Uh, I think um, people will start using, you know, buying back their holidays, so effectively leave without pay and taking more time off. The effect of that and working remotely really is you're going to have a larger workforce working out of smaller amounts of corporate space. But what it does give you is capacity. It gives an organisation capacity for those high peak times to, to call on a lot more staff. So I think it's a good thing, but it's, it's certainly that's the way I see that trend playing out over time. And we're only very early days in that trend. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we've got a whole topic on that coming we up. Do. So yes. um, that's a good lead-in, absolutely. But I suppose talking about the bricks-and-mortar style of it first before we get into the office environment, uh, we know that there's a lot of retail moving online. We've seen those percentages increase and, and all embracing the omni-channel delivery. What, uh, what's your advice to landlords and potential landlords um, around the retail sector of what they've got to consider now for uh, their industry segment? Yeah, if you look at where uh, investors are putting their money into at the moment, it's certainly uh, single tenant um, new build investments. So those kind of things that are particularly in demand at the moment are fast food, service station and childcare. Uh, being in a new build means you've got all the benefits of depreciation and all those uh, low maintenance for an extended period. Um, being single tenant makes it a lot easier to manage and uh, I think the price points for those things make it well within a lot of people's super or private investment uh, reach. And so you're seeing um, you know, very low yields because interest rates are low and I think that's going to continue for some time. So they're going to satisfy themselves there. It's, well, where, who's going to miss out really is a question, if that's where all the, the advantage is. The, the, the people that are going to miss out are in those more secondary locations, less popular locations or older facilities that haven't had the capital expenditure spent to keep them up to you know, current standard. They're the ones that are going to be most affected and they're going to have to look to repurpose themselves either around usage um, or utility. You know, the size and scale of them needs to change to, to meet the market. If we've touched on inflation, let's assume the Reserve Bank gets a itchy trigger finger and interest rates rise this year. How does that impact on the valuation of property? I think we've all done some 101 studies where we know about cap rates and yields and as, as interest rates fall, cap rates go up, our property's worth more, et cetera, et cetera. Can you just explain for our listeners out there um, a little bit about how interest rates affect the valuation of property? Yeah, certainly. Um, and the threat of increasing interest rates often results in an increased wave of, of people leaping into the market while they still can afford to in their mind. 
Uh, and for those that haven't already missed the boat, you know, locking in some fixed interest rates for as long as possible, two, three or five years if they can still get it. Uh, and so that threat's already happening and that wave of increased investment's already happening. Um, but there's an assumption that as interest rates go up, then the yields on properties will do the same. I think initially it'll probably head the other way because of those supply and demand forces. But eventually you would assume that investors are going to want uh, a margin on their money. But at the moment they're spoiled, they're getting net positive cash flows. That hasn't always been the case. You know, in different economic cycles, different property cycles, it's been negative gearing has been the way things have been. So I think um, people will just adjust. You know, people have, we're in a capitalistic society and people find a way to benefit from that. And I don't think this market's going to change. So you don't see um, any issues with interest rates rising too far? You think it would actually have a positive effect and, and balance out a, a hot market into a one that's more sustainable? Yeah, I think uh, governments are going to be super cautious about um, putting interest rates up too high too soon. So if they are going to move, they're going to do it. They're going to threaten it a lot to try and have the same effect as, as an actual change, so a virtual impact. Uh, and then when they do make a change, I think they'll leave it as late as possible and make it as short as possible because they're not sure how much of an increase is too much to then turn off an economy and, and really uh, cause us a lot more trouble. I mean, at the moment, there's an enormous amount of government stimulus in the market. That's why um, not just the property market, but all investment markets and the economy generally is globally is so strong. Um, that at some stage needs to settle down. Um, sovereign wealth pays interest. They don't want to see globally high interest rates either because then that country's wealth is that much greater and that much harder for them to repay as well. So, you know, it's not just them, that are, it's not just their voters that are affected by high interest rates, it's the countries themselves. And, and just touching on, on countries, that's an interesting point. We, we've seen in the past where a lot of international money's come into Australia because of, of interest rate differentials and currency differentials and, and higher yields here than, say, in Asia and Europe. Uh, what's, what's, the, what's the balance there for if Australia starts to raise rates mm. uh, and overseas raises quicker because we don't have you know, as much inflation, et cetera, do we see money coming out or, or will we see that sustained money coming in still? Um, we've seen in the, the, the papers of late, you know, the Japanese are back buying property again. So... Mm. Um, is that a sustainable market for, for uh, our investors, I suppose, to look at? Are they now going to start competing more with international money? Yeah, Ian, it's already the case. So if you look at the, the past 12 months, most of uh, the highest proportion of investment in non-residential property, so commercial, industrial and retail in Australia, has been from overseas. And I think that's an increasing trend. And when those people start immigrating into Australia more permanently, then they're certainly going to bring a lot more of their wealth. And uh, these people um, overseas have a, a scale of wealth far beyond what many locals have. And that just means they can pay more for those homes that, that already look expensive. They'll um, certainly in those sort of brand locations, and the brand locations in Australia, the last two years have obviously been Noosa and Byron. You know, they'll be the epicentres of some of that investment, but then your capital cities as well, and we'll just gravitate out from there. So I think all markets are going to benefit from that if, if increasing property prices are considered a benefit, and they are if you already own property. So let's, uh, let's assume that we've bought some property and we need tenants. Uh, 
Or we have an existing tenant that's coming to good, the... Good luck. <laughs> well, that is a question that's coming up, so I'm glad, I'm glad that you're, you're already thinking along those lines. But let's assume we're coming to an end of a lease. Um, and once again, probably something that we've all come across in our... Uh, whether that's industrial or commercial or office or, or resi. Tenant incentives. It's, it's always a great topic that people like to talk about, how much they got if they're a tenant and the landlord says how much they had to hand out sure. to the tenant. We've, we've, we're in offices here in the city, so so is yourself, so no doubt there's, there's, we've had incentives, et cetera. They're here to stay, no doubt, um, but what is the current trend in tenant incentives, especially, you know, I won't say we're post-COVID, but, you know, we've all had, um, we've all had discussions around tenants that can't pay, cafes that, that, that are struggling, restaurants, et cetera. Currently, where do we sit with tenant incentives? Yep, uh, definitely an upward trend. So it's a response to demand. It's an attempt to maintain the face level of rental income on a property. So landlords, um, to maintain their asset value, want the income to be as high as possible and incentives help them, allow them to do that. From the tenant's point of view, the first decision for any tenant is trying to work out how much space they need. And most tenants at the moment with a lot of staff working remotely are looking saying, do we really need all this office space? That's certainly the case in the commercial market. Uh, and once they get a clearer line of sight as to what their headcount's going to be and how much of that uh, staff is going to work remotely, then they've got a better sense on where they're going to be. And for most tenants, renegotiating their existing uh, with their existing landlord is the most sensible place to do and possibly for smaller space than they already have or potentially reconfigured. I think what you're going to start to see is a lot more common areas. So those reception areas, those bar and cafe-like feel, you know, as you enter those offices. Um, you've always had, you know, some of those outdoor entertainment areas and barbecues and pools and, and gyms. Uh, most of your CBD buildings with institutional investors have added end of trip, which is starting to feel more like a hotel experience. Um, you're certainly seeing that. Um, anyone that's been to a Qantas club, you know, those, that experience and feel of a Qantas club or a hotel, you're going to start to see move into office space. And particularly in the CBD, some of the uh, more savvy institutional landlords are starting to provide those facilities. They're starting to provide common areas that allow for businesses to do uh, casual overflow of staff. So if they've got too many people to occupy their floor, they can occupy some of the landlord space and pay for that. So it's more pay per seat rather than pay per square metre of space. And that flexibility is, so the staff want flexibility around where they work and how often they work and how many holidays they have and how much they're paid. The companies equally will want some flexibility from their landlords about how much space they occupy, how much rent they pay, for what period. So you're starting to head to more of a, of a pay per seat cost uh, with the landlord providing at a premium some flexibility around additional space or reduced space over you know whatever period of tenure people are having. So I think you'll start to see that as a trend and it'll continue and, and the better landlords will get better occupancy and a better return as a consequence and, and so they should. So do you think incentives will ever stretch into the residential property? Absolutely. So um, incentives started um, up at the northern end of Australia, not trying to put the bite on Brisbane too hard, but. Uh, started in the office market, they've definitely bled into the industrial and re retail market. And at the moment, 
it's it's a seller's market for residential rentals and that is the landlords no longer need to do lots of inspections and get a tenant. Now they're saying to tenants, you put in your application and we'll choose the best applicant and tell them they're successful. So that's a whole different you know, uh, bargaining position. It's almost like an auction. Uh, and so you know, incentives are, are 180 degrees opposite to that type of market. But at some stage in the future, when there's a lot more supply and there's a lot less demand, then tenants will be offered, uh, you know, first week free, first two weeks free, or they'll be offered a delayed start, which means you can move in today, but you don't start paying rent until some later date, which is really just uh, a subtle incentive. Um, that's, that's inevitable, I think, particularly with the built-to-rent owners. You know, they're going to be the first ones to do it. Yep. The, the private owners of a house or an apartment will lag that trend, but uh, yeah, your build to rent will start doing that if they're not already. I always thought they should put a big screen TV in those environments because that's, you know, come on in and watch your big screen TV, yep. but you know, that's just me. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's great. So if we are, and you touched on it, as, as business owners, as, as, as employers, companies, and we've got a lot of space or had a lot of space and we've got business plans in place to expand, subleasing becomes a strategy or, or you know, a market turns like they have with COVID and we don't need as much space, people work from home, etc. So subleasing has become common. Um, we saw it probably a little bit at the end of the mining boom um, and now we've probably seen it a little bit with COVID and the work from home. What's the, what's the general trend in your experience around subleasing? Uh, is it is it more common than what we know as just a person walking around the street? And I suppose going forward, is it going to be filled up in Brisbane and, and surrounding areas or will there always be a, an element of subleasing available? Yeah, so sublease is a consequence of lease term. If you're committing to a 10-year lease, you know, are you going to need all of that space for that period? And is your, um, you know your staff headcount's not going to be static for that period. So how do you manage that? So sublease has existed, um, particularly in the middle of COVID, and we're into the second year now. Uh, you know, people, organisations that have decided they've got more space than they need uh, are trying to reduce cost. And if you're a tenant out looking and the fit-out, the existing fit-out suits your operation. So if there's no significant um, building works needed, then sublease space can suit you really well and you can take it because... You know, the negotiability of that company wanting to offload their cost is likely to be way more malleable than the landlord of the same building who's trying to maintain his property value. So uh, the owners of these properties are going to have difficulty competing to do direct leases with the same tenants as their, their own subleasing tenants because the subtenant will, will let the rent go for less. But the moment any fit-out works need to be done. Well, who's going to pay for that? And if you've got a company that's already saying, I've got too much space, are they really wanting to spend money on, on refitting that office space to someone else? And that's usually not the case. So as soon as any fit-out works need to be done, you know, who are they going to turn to? They're going to go to the landlord because he's the one with the capital and he's got the ability to spend that sort of thing. So I think at the moment we're in a little trend where sublease space is mopping up a significant portion of demand, but that'll change, and it'll change as soon as you know at least ten years have washed out, and as soon as uh, tenants start needing changes to fit out, then uh, the landlords will hold sway again. Okay. So, with all that in mind, and we've touched on a few different uh, topics around 
work from home around um, the, trying to avoid commute, etc. It kind of leads into some headlines that we've all seen about the death of the CBD. Now, we're in the CBD and it's pretty quiet. It has been for a little while now. And, you know, as we see people come back, hopefully um, it builds up a bit. But there is a lot of lease space around, uh, whether that's cafe or retail themselves, trying to then get another new tenant in there. Is, is it a case of it's a little bit over-exaggerated that the death of the CBD isn't really going to, you know, happen, but there could very well be a, a change of purpose, et cetera, around how the office buildings are used? Uh, we've already seen some, especially around the Adelaide Street, Creek Street, Wall Street area where they become student accommodation, uh, yep. previous office buildings. Um, I suppose, what's, what's Savills and your opinion around um, the CBD and, and its uh, ability to continue? Yep. Uh, so there's always been uh, some tension between whether to be in the city or out of it, um, and that's uh, likely to continue. You know, the CBD is a central business district. It's likely to be the dominant market for that for some time. Um, in Brisbane, there's a lot more residential been moving in here the last couple of decades, but I think... Uh, the CBD will continue to be the dominant market. Uh, if you look at occupancy the last two years, you know, our office might have been around 50% for that time, um, maybe a little higher at the end of last year and a little lower at the moment. But uh, that means if you're in food and beverage, you know, restaurants and cafes and serving lunches, you know, you're enormously difficult for that period. And uh, clearly they'll have had some rent assistance to try and maintain it. But where do they go moving forward? That lease comes due. You know, the office tenant's re-signing because he's still got an, you know, an organisation to run, but the retailer's looking and going, well, oh, I think this might be a bit too hard, I'm out of here. So, you know, that's why you're going to see that uh, the, the retail vacancy for some time. Uh, in terms of commercial tenants, whether they're in the city or out, tenants move out of the city or stay out of the city because they prefer a more campus-style office park, so some of those bigger tenants like that sort of thing, or accessibility, either for their staff or for their clients, so easier in their mind to drive in and out, and parking. If you've got a big sales force or a big service team, do you really want to be trying to locate them in the city, or do you go with a more decentralised model and have one or several, north and south, and you know covering different geographies to manage that? Well, I don't think that's going to change. You know, certainly some bigger employees in the city at various times have put either back office staff out of town or have gone with um, a more decentralised, you know, uh, structure. But most organisations, when they get the chance and can afford to, so when the economy is strong enough and their margins are strong enough, they want to bring everyone back together because that's when you get to influence culture and, and branding and, and reinvent the place and invigorate the place and that's really the whole point of that. You know, if you want the advantage of working for a good organisation then you need that cultural you know, benefit. So um, bring them back together and, and often that's in the city. So you don't see the headquarters in the CBD and, and decentralised offices becoming more common? I know we're not as big as Sydney you know, the, the CBD versus Parramatta and then those sort of satellite offices. Um, do you, you know, do you see a Chermside or a Mount Gravatt or, or an Ipswich or Springfield for that matter? They've been trying to get a lot of people out there. Do you, yeah. do you see that as, as South East Queensland grows as potentially something yeah. that may, may benefit and therefore the CBD has to change purpose? 
Yep. So the city council's been encouraging those kind of locations for decades. Um, and, you know, if you look at your professions, they're dealing with other professions. So, you know, your lawyers, accountants, you know, the, those kind of organisations tend to be uh, focused on the city, even though they're servicing people from all over Brisbane. Um, you know, I think you're going to see some of the people move out. But until the government, you know, it's the government are about a third of the demand in the city. Until they do significant uh, decentralisation, the state government's already moved in in William Street, so they're already shown their intentions is to not decentralise. Yep. Um, two decades ago, the ATO, so the federal government, moved to Chermside and Mount Cravat. That didn't lead to a lot of other organisations following them. A few may have. Yep. So, no, I think that uh, that's already been tested. And, you know, those that want to move out there have, but, but generally the, the city tends to hold sway. Okay. So if that's, if that's the case... And we assume that the the work from home continues. Yeah. What do you what do you see as being the the internal look of offices? Then um, I suppose we all have square meterage. We might have moved into a place that had offices and a and a couple of boardrooms and meeting rooms, etc. What's the what's the new wave? We, we you touched on campus and and you know Google and and Apple and even uh, a few others are building single building campus style uh, and, and everyone works there forever. Mm. You, know, you, have your, you have your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner, you have your gym there, they provide you know, dry cleaners to drop your laundry off. If the work from home grips all of that and the employee is no longer you know, being dictated to by the employer, what do you do with the space? Mm. What are we looking at when we walk into an office in, in 2024, 25? Yeah. And, is, and is hot desking still a thing as well? Yeah, well, the, the hot desking trend, I uh, travelled the Savills offices in Asia and Europe some time ago, and it was all uh, lined up desks, no offices. So you could see that trend coming to Australia, and it certainly did. But moving forward, no, I think employers and land and the owners of these properties, so not just the companies, but the owners of the buildings, are going to create um, more attractive common areas. So whether that's within the tenancy, within the building, where it feels more like a hotel, it feels more like you know Qantas Club, it feels like a place you want to, to spend some time at. Um, particularly your younger workforce, they're going home to change and go out, go to sleep and have a shower and go back to work. So you know they're not needing big facilities and that's why build to rent has become an increasing trend because they're spending more and more time eating, drinking, socialising in the, uh, whether it's a work environment or a city environment. And so, yeah, that's certainly spreading. But then when they get to a family age, uh, they're wanting to move to a suburban location, so clearly spending less time in the office. So I think it's a trend around time of life more than anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, rather than one size fits all and you live in a house in the suburbs and you work five days a week in an office, that's all changing now and it's a lot more flexible both in location and time. And, I think that'll continue, and that's a good thing. That flexibility makes you an attractive employer. So then is it going to be up to the landlord, like you, you said a little bit previous around, if I need a few more staff, I've got internal spaces on another floor perhaps. Is it, Will the landlord become more flexible? I'm not saying you're going to have 15 floors of serviced offices, but mm. is there going to be vacant space, so to speak, within larger buildings, um, whereas where I am as a employer, go, okay, I have 25 staff, 30 staff, but suddenly I need 35. Mm. 
I don't want to shift, I don't want to, you know, cut offices, cut open space. I can go down two floors and, and take a suite or two. That's best practice, absolutely. And, you know, serviced offices in the same building as you was just the landlord outsourcing that service to someone else, whereas now they're going to take a little bit more of a direct approach, um, particularly your institutional landlords. They want to keep a tenant for life. So whether it's in this particular asset they own at the moment or the next one, um, they want to build a relationship where that tenant knows they can rely on that landlord to support them with whatever their business needs are and that includes providing that overflow space rather than relying on outsourcing it to others to do. So absolutely, that's the direction I think we're headed in. So just following up a question with that, leasing then, is it going to be shorter terms or longer terms? Well, that comes back to the tenant's need uh, around, uh, around consistency. So if you're in uncertain times, which certainly economically we are, and, and from a medical health point of view, it's uncertain times. If people are uncertain where they're going to be living and how long they're working from home, do they want to work for an organisation that's moving every two or three years, or do they want to work for an organisation that's still in the same spot that they can rely on, and do their clients want to know where they are? So from a client trust point of view and credibility point of view, you know, if, if they're going, well, you, you would there a year ago, you're somewhere else a year later, where am I meant to find you? So you might actually find there's a trend uh, for some larger employers that want credibility to actually stay in the same place for longer. So if we're staying in the same place longer and our landlords are loving us to death and providing all these add-ons to us, where, where do the new buildings get built? When, when, do another, when does another 480 Queen Street pop up? I mean, how are... How are institutional landlords going to get the, the big, big number employers to, sh to swap buildings if they're so well looked after? Yeah, well, that's where we're at at the moment. So, you know, you would imagine there's decreased demand for a new office building in most capital cities at the moment. And the only way it's really going to come about is those institutional landlords that have already nurtured those relationships over long periods of time. And they're going to take those tenants out of either their existing asset they've got or if they've been fortunate enough to have transacted that asset and then trying to take that tenant with them into the new building. But those uh, time frames are three or five years or more for those things to happen. So they happen quite slowly, but that's how that'll play out. And there'll still be new office buildings in the city. It'll just be demand-driven. It's going to be certainly less speculative because your financiers aren't wanting to... to um, risk their capital at this point on um, something that's too uncertain. So do you see any particular areas as well further out uh, for development? Is there still plenty of space available for industry to grow? Certainly um, that's council driven. So councils dictate um, allowable usages um, and and have done for some time. Certainly the Queensland State Government the last couple of decades have uh, decided they'd like more influence in those areas. So they've created priority development areas where they've uh, driven um, some of that uh, allowable usage. Uh, they created the um, uh, ULDA, which were, were actively getting in and, and showing some councils how to fast track that approval process and how that attracted uh, more investment. So I think, uh, you know, they're all responding to those sort of needs and I uh, 
you know, different cities manage it differently. Melbourne is a lot more prescriptive, so they've got zones and, and very clear as to uh, what's allowed. And what that's doing is um, bringing greater supply, which is dulling down price. So uh, here in Brisbane, it's a little bit more opportunistic and reactionary, and so you get a bit more volatility around price and demand and supply. So you can't, you can't get out of a property discussion without asking this question. Will stamp duty and land tax ever disappear? Well, at the moment, that's to the benefit of the state government, and uh, most governments are looking at their budgets, uh, not trying to reduce costs, so they're only going to try and increase uh, revenue. So, no, I don't think that's changing too much, but I think it's not an absolute decision, it's a relative decision. If, uh, if another state made changes, then this state would react, I would think. So we therefore have to... Lobby all state governments is not just our own. <laughs> so talking, talking, of, we stay, we try and stay away from politics in these sort of podcasts. But I suppose you know that is one consideration. Some state does something, um, one other follows, or, or they try to, to to influence big employers with with um, special special rates, especially for landlords as well. With the Olympics coming, uh, and we've talked about interstate migration. As well, we've seen the numbers, especially with COVID, they've all started coming up. What what are some of the trends, and and how are they going to uh, impact South East Queensland and, and and regional Queensland as well? I'm sure, I'm sure that the likes of Toowoomba and, and Townsville and Cairns aren't going to miss out on some of this migration stuff. What um, what are some of the trends that, that you're seeing, um, and and provide a bit of a scope for our investors to. Um, decide whether or not that's something that they should look into. Yep, so um, every property cycle uh, tends to uh, have a similar effect over time where those benefits that occur in the capital cities radiate out to your regions and they tend to you know, be um, closest geography first. So that uh, trend of domestic migration north I think is going to happen um, not just Sydney and Melbourne but uh, for those people that are no longer tethered to a workplace or family, so it depends where kids and grandkids are in the life cycle, uh, they're going to choose to migrate to a better climate. And that usually in Australia means heading north and heading towards the coast, although there's a significant tree change. So either people are wanting you know, the surf and sand or they're wanting to get out of that for a bit of privacy, and particularly when health and wellbeing are an issue, some isolation, so getting further away from the populace. Um, gives them a, a, a greater level of comfort. And so I think that's a trend you're going to see. Um, uh, for those that are in a life cycle still needing employment, um, and that employment is not some wonder app where they can work from home, you know, they're needing to be close to the capital city, so that's happening at the moment. But eventually the kind of demand and price rises, people start saying, well, I can't afford to, to buy in this area. I'll, I'll move to somewhere where I can afford and still have some money left over. And so that's why that ripple effect happens over time, but it takes a full property cycle to wash that out, and that's usually sort of seven to ten years. So with, with that in mind, yeah. what industries are you seeing expanding from a popularity perspective, from a price perspective? And, and what industries are you seeing contracting, going yep. the other way, even even as this property cycle is, is still kicking off? Yep. So um, 
the shift to online spending, you know, the big beneficiaries were any of the logistics firms, so any of those uh, transport companies. Um, you know, COVID may have saved Australia Post, who knows? So, you know, they're where people aren't doing the click and collect, someone needs to deliver what they've they've acquired and, you know, those organisations uh, focused on that. So you're seeing um, the industrial market for the last two years and probably for the next 10 is kind of the rock star of the property sector and uh, that's a consequence of, of, you know, that demand and the shift from retail. You know, people are looking at it saying, well, if I can buy the same pair of shoes and if it's sitting in a shop and that shop's paying 10 times the rent of that warehouse and I can get them for better value, then I'll, I'll order them through the warehouse and let someone deliver them to me. Well, that's, uh, that's been a trend that's really escalated the last two years and that's why industrial's been so strong. Uh, I think retail clearly is uh, to the detriment of that, so they, they're copying the brunt of that, so both the retailers and the retail owners, so that's certainly a, a shift in that area. I think the change in office demand hasn't fully washed out because um, staff haven't worked out how much they want to work remotely, employers haven't worked out how much they want them in the office and haven't worked out what their foreseeable demand for headcount will be and their lease terms haven't all expired yet. So once that's washed through a full cycle and that'll take some time, then we'll really see the impact on that commercial market, but certainly it's in transition. And then what about for our mum and dad investors? I mean, they're getting squeezed from everywhere, from institutionals, from property syndicates, from uh, you know, unlisted property trusts. We've got international money coming in. Where, where can the mum and dads you know, put a few dollars in and get in the property game? Um, so the mum and dads that already own you know, their principal place of residence have benefited from the capital growth. So that's been unexpected for them. Uh, if they've had money in super up until recently, that had been a little bit uh, subdued, but those returns, particularly from the stock market, have been a lot stronger. Uh, if you look at the discussion we're having around, you know, commercial office space in the CBD, you know, one of the biggest owners of that is, you know, everyone's superannuation and insurance. So if they're in transition and going to have reduced returns, then they're going to be um, re doing reduced payouts to you know, the holders of those super policies, um, that's certainly going to affect everyone and that takes some time. But back to your mum and dad investor, you know, they've got greater wealth because their principal place of residence, they've got greater wealth in whatever existing assets they own and certainly rather than having money in the bank or um, for some of them money in the stock market, either locally or internationally, they've been putting money into single tenant um, you know, new investments, which is that whole fast food, servo, childcare type investment. Uh, I know I, th I think you'll see that as a continued trend because they're um, self-funding their retirement and that's the way they can keep control of doing that and I think that's going to continue. And, you know, when you look at the migration we've talked about, the immigration and the infrastructure spending for the Olympics, then we're in for a pretty buoyant next decade. Excellent. Well, that sounds very, very positive for South East Queensland and uh, the whole of Queensland, for that matter. Uh, we've heard quite a lot around inflation not being an issue, interest rates not being an issue, tenants not being an issue, <laughs> staff being an issue or not being an issue Hang too. On, so. Was either she be right? It's been it's been very, very excellent to hear some of those. Um, 
special points and also the experience that comes with it all that uh, property is a, is a good asset to be part of. Everyone works as a team inside and out. Um, we can't get a building without tenants. We can't get a building without landlords. We can't get a building without companies. So that's been great, I think, with the infrastructure coming forward, um, a lot more people getting involved with the online that the whole change of roles with respect to some of this usage that perhaps the council will have to adapt some of their policies uh, especially for the strip shops that are in the high streets as they say as well um, if there is the bill to rent how does that impact roads and parking and all those sorts of things so certainly we've touched on a small aspect there's going to be plenty more coming out of this year um, and next um, so Robert I hope uh, you'll come back in the future um, we've got this recorded we can go back to see what That's you right. said but we won't hold yeah. it against you because it's it's what it is today um, we can only provide advice based on current legislation as well so um, you can't hold us to, to account all the time but it's been great um, if you'd like to to leave some words of wisdom for for our listeners mate that would be much appreciated uh, I think we're in for a, a, a very strong next decade, certainly the first half of that. So anyone that's considering, um, you know, investing and investing in themselves, their businesses or other assets, then I think uh, the next, uh, certainly the next five years is going to be uh, a very good decision and could well be a bit longer than that. Um, yeah, I appreciate the chance to come on and happy to answer any other questions you might have. Terrific. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, as uh, as Ian mentioned, it's it's great to have you as the the first guest for for the year, especially with property being such a, a hot topic at the moment. So, um, yeah, really appreciate your time uh, this morning, and yeah, look forward to hearing further from you in the future as well. Pleasure. Thank you. For business owners seeking accounting, taxation, business advisory, and superannuation support and assistance, please feel free to get in contact with the advisor team at Archer Gallen Redshaw, led by Ian Walker, Smiljan Jankovic, and Valda Glynn. Our firm are a Brisbane CBD-based accounting practice supporting businesses across a variety of industries throughout southeast Queensland and nationally. You can get in contact with our team via the website www.agredshaw.com.au, via email at info at agredshaw.com.au or contacting 073002 2699.